0: We are continuing our series of teachings that we've called the immediate Jesus from the Gospel of Mark. And we so far we've taken a general look at the Gospel of Mark from the point of view that it, that it, of it being offered to the Roman world. We've talked about Jesus in His public ministry. We've talked about Jesus in His private relationships. And tonight is going to be a, a, a wee bit different. We're, we're going to be talking tonight about Jesus and His parables Now that's actually a little bit of an unusual topic for a study of the Gospel of Mark, because if you remember, in the first week of the series, uh, I told you Mark. The truth is, Mark was not overly concerned with the parables of Jesus, and he recorded fewer parables than any of the other Gospels. And so there are six parables recorded in the Gospel of Mark, and and we're going to be looking at all six of those tonight. And uh, because there's so few of them we can do that. but as we do, I'm just going to ask you to to be praying for a clearer view of Jesus of who Jesus is. Pray pray tonight that when we're done that you'll be more in touch with the man who who taught these parables rather than just having an academic understanding of the parables themselves. Uh, because what we're about here tonight, and this is true for every time we gather together, it's about getting in close. It's about snuggling up to Jesus and just you know like 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 pulling up next to your your grandfather's rocking chair and listening to the stories that he has to tell. that's kind of the picture but we want to just draw up close to him and listen to him teach. so uh, let me let me just give you the method we'll be using in approaching these parables. we will first of all uh, take the individual parables and we'll ask ourselves basically we're going to ask two questions. what is the context of the parable? And then the second question is what, are the, what is the content of the parable, context and content, and uh, you know where were they, where were they when they when it when it was taught, and in what situation uh, were they uh, in when um, uh, when w- when Jesus said it, and then what did Jesus actually say? So then the third thing we'll do is take a. Uh, well, really, I guess the second thing, the general overview of the six parables together in a composite portrait. So once we understand them all individually, we want to look at the overall picture of all of the teachings and ask ourselves some questions. Is there, is there any particular insight that may be available to us in the order in which they appear? And we'll talk about the themes that appear over and over again, and we'll talk about Jesus's style of teaching through these parables. And then finally, we're going to talk about the first parable and the last parable and how, how they connect. All right, so let's begin. Excuse me. All right, the first one is found in Mark chapter 2, in verse 21 and 22. And really, it's kind of a pair of them, but they're, 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 they're together, so I'm going to treat them as one. Jesus is speaking. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new, the new from the old... And a worse tear is made, and no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. Now, the context here is something at which we will we want to look with particular interest, because the, the parables are preceded by Mark chapter two verses one through twelve, which are the the record of a, of a great healing. And if you will, please please notice the verses one through 12 that, and that, that it's the same passage, the same story recorded uh, in that you I'm sure you'll remember in Luke chapter five, it's the healing of the paralytic man who was lowered through the rooftop. We all all know that story. And that, that, that puts this parable then in the context of healing and forgiveness. So if you will look look at verse 12, particularly the last part, but he, it says, and he, the, the man that, that was healed, the paralytic that was healed, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified. God, saying, what? We never saw anything like this. In other words, hey, this is something new. This, this is something entirely new here. So now let's, let's just go back and look at the incident itself. And for, ju- for just a moment, just sort of as preparation, for the parable so that we can understand the context more fully. Jesus speaks to the man. And, and if you remember, he, they lower him down there, but he, at one point in time, before he heals him, Jesus speaks to the man and he says, your sins are forgiven. You remember that moment? And, th- and there's a great deal of murmuring and discontent among the religious folk that are standing around and the Pharisees and the scribes, they doubt whether or not Jesus has the authority to extend forgiveness of sins. But Jesus says. Your sins are forgiven. And they, they are, they're saying, in effect, and I'll paraphrase what the Pharisees were saying in, in response. They're saying, hey, who does he think he is? Where, where does he get off forgiving sins? And Jesus says, and if you look at verse 8, and there, there again is, is Mark's favorite word. What is it? What is Mark's favorite word? Immediately. There you go. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Now, look, look at the the question in verse nine, because once again, Jesus answers the question with a question in a way. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Now, I want to stop there for just a moment, because that is actually a very fascinating question which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk well to to get to the to 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 the answer to the question we have to really pay attention to what he asks because he does not ask which is easier to do he asks which is easier to say so, so honestly, the answer to the question is that one is just as easy as the other. You can say either one just as easily. It's just as easy to say your sins are forgiven as it is to say to take up your bed and walk. That's easy to say. However, the obvious implication here is, is you could say which, which is the more expensive one to say. Which is the one that's more... that's, that's uh, that's more easily, ident- uh, uh, you, you can determine whether or not what he said happens. Now, now our, on our natural mind, you know, and the natural man says that it's to say to take up your bed and walk. Because it, it, that would be the more difficult, that would be the more expensive thing to say. Because if he doesn't take up his bed and walk, then your authority and your power is instantly in question. So Jesus says, in essence, because you're trapped in this carnal, natural level, I will demonstrate to you my authority by saying to him, take up your bed and walk, so that, what? So that you may believe that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. So he's saying, listen, um, uh, uh, well, basically here in the natural realm, to, to the natural mind, it is more difficult to say, and then to actually perform, have the evidence to show it, it's more difficult to say, take up your bed and walk. However, if you, if you take the context and the, uh, of, of the entire incident, and you really take the context of the entire Bible in, in mind, Jesus makes it clear that it is infinitely more difficult to minister real forgiveness to a twisted spirit than it is to minister healing to a twisted body. So... He's, he was asking which was easier to say, but the truth is, which one is easy, is is more difficult to do, is the is the healing, is the forgiveness. Um, he he says the only reason I'm going to give phys, a physical healing here is so that so that you can believe that I have the power to forgive sins. Which, which is easier, therefore, to say, and, and which is easier to really perform? The healing of, of of a body is easier to perform in the eyes of God. That's it's kind of why I always sort of get tickled when when people who are doubters, when they're talking about emotional healing or somebody, you know, uh, receiving uh, some kind of re- emotional relief and, from the Lord, whatever he does in their minds and their emotions and their spirit. And they say things like, oh, yeah, well, it was just an emotional healing or, or it was just a mental thing or it was just a you know, spiritual teaching. But I feel honestly, I feel it's far more accurate to say, oh, that was just a physical healing. Uh, because feel- physical healing is in my mind, and you can disagree with me, it's okay. It's not going to hurt my feelings. In my mind, physical healing is the lesser miracle. For one thing, physical healing is always, te- always temporary. Right? I mean, Lazarus even was raised from the dead, but guess what? He died again. You know, so so the but the spiritual miracle is a greater miracle because that is something that's eternal. And, and, you know, people that are twisted and and corrupted by sin and degradation and bondage and strongholds and guilt and fear and condemnation. Those are the people that are really hard to reach with healing. It's much easier to get over a broken leg than a than a broken spirit. Anybody say amen to that? Nevertheless, Jesus says, I want you to understand this and I want you to believe it. So, so since you're trapped in the physical, I'll minister to you at the physical realm. And so he says to the man, stand up and walk. And the man doesn't. He walks. Now, now they say what? Look at this. They say, we never saw anything like this. They say, this is different. We're talking about something completely different here. They said, this is not just your regular, everyday thing going on here. Even at the most extended level of our faith, something different is going on here in this place. So, uh, and, then, and then right after that story, then there's the next part is the calling of Matthew Levi in, in verses 13 through 20. And, and yet again, watch the situation in the setting. He, he's, he's setting us up for the parable. Jesus calls Matthew Levi, uh, the most hated man in town. He's a tax collector, a liar, a a cheat. He's a traitor to his own nation and to his own people. He's a greedy little con man and he he calls him and then Jesus goes to dinner with with Matthew and his ilk and, and he sits down to eat with people who are reprobates, wicked, wicked, sinful people. And then there's all kinds of judgment about this. Then Jesus says in verse 21 No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. The context then is this Jesus says, Look, this is all, this is a new thing. And it's going to be done in a new way. Your old religious system cannot cannot uh, accommodate what I'm about to do. Your old way of thinking cannot accommodate what I'm doing. This going to do. This is a whole new package. This is. Not simply a restatement of the old principle of the pharisaical law. He's doing an entirely new thing here. A new understanding of of sin. A new understanding of forgiveness. A new understanding of righteousness. A new understanding of healing. A new understanding of humanity. Even a new understanding of God. It's it's not just simply putting a new label on the old bottle of ketchup. You, You catch what I'm saying? This is different. Uh, it, it's entirely and completely different than anything he says that, you, that that you've dealt with in the past. Now then, let's look at the second one, chapter four, verses one through twelve, and and this is the the, the second parable. R- really, actually, truth truth is, this whole passage is is it's actually a group of parables, if you will. And uh, this passage in Mark chapter four, uh, it it. it it's comprised of the. It includes the second, third, fourth, and fifth parables, and, and and in fact, all the parables in the book of in the Gospel of Mark, except for the first and the last one, are right here in this segment of Scripture from chapter four, verse one through chapter four, verse thirty-four. So let's look at these parables separately, and 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 then we'll we'll deal with them uh, all together in a moment. Parable number two is is the parable of the sower and the seed. Another seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was done, those around him with the 12, this is the circle of his most intimate friends, they asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now I want you to, if you're okay writing in your Bible, I want you to circle that word secret in verse 11, some translations translate that mystery or something like that, because that is a crucial insight into the way that Mark understood the parables. Mark understood the parables of Jesus to be a way that that Jesus would communicate the spiritual realities of the kingdom of God with those who were spiritually ready to receive them. And and he was saying them publicly, but those who were operating in the physical realm Uh, We know scripture says the carnal man cannot receive the things of God. So Mark understood the parables of Jesus to be a way that he could say things publicly and those who were prepared to receive it spiritually would receive it. It's a mystery or a secret being taught in almost in code language, as it were, symbolism, so that those who can hear it will hear it. Uh, Now then, this this little group of parables must, uh, in a sense, be you, you, they're, they're separate, you can look at them separately, but you also need to sort of look at them together. The parable of the sower and the seed follows chapter 3 verses 31 through 35. and, and, and we're going we're gonna to zero in on context in these parables. So let's look at this. What was the situation where Jesus taught these things? Look at Mark chapter 3 verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came. Now, I just want to say, irrespective of any teaching that you may have received or heard elsewhere, Mary did not remain a virgin uh, following giving birth to Jesus. She was not a perpetual virgin. She gave birth to a multiplicity of other children, including both brothers and sisters, two of whose names we know, Jude and James. And so these are Jesus's half brothers, okay? and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside they said they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you and he answered them who are my mother and my brothers and looking about at those who sat around him he said here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of god he is my brother and sister and mother in other words jesus says again we're talking about new things there will be entirely new relationships in the kingdom of God and that these new relationships will be brought about by the initiative of God. And, and then Jesus launches from that straight into the parable of the sower and the seed. So he says here, the parable, that there will be a new order of relationships in the kingdom that will, be, that will transcend the realities of the accidents of your birth. You know, he says, I can't choose my brothers in the flesh. I can't, I can't choose my parents. I can't change those things that may be perceived by the world as accidents of birth. Of course, we know they're not accidents at all, but it's the will and the hand of God involved in our lives. But the point is, I can't choose those things, right? You can't choose those things. However, in the kingdom, there will be an entirely new level of relationships, and this will be done by the initiative of God. The parable then the, which follows is, is about the spirit of evangelism. But, but he throws this monkey wrench in it that we don't like to hear. And that is the teaching of the responsibility of the hearer. Now, now stay with me just a moment. We, we, we often understand the parable of the sower and the seed as, as uh, meaning the different types of ground, meaning that there are different kinds of people. That, that, that the seed of the gospel and the word of God is sown wantonly throughout the world. And that some seed falls on people that that have stony hearts. And some falls on people who refuse to receive it. And the birds come and devour it. And some fall on people that are shallow and ins, uh, insubstantial. And they won't and it won't take up root. And so then if they, the heat of the day comes, then they're destro- it's destroyed. And some fall on, on thorny soil and the cares of this world choke it out. And some fall on people who are prepared to hear the gospel. Now... The problem with that interpretation is that it makes it where we tend to see that it's the responsibility of the sower to find good soil. And that's not what the passage means, I don't believe. The passage, I think, means that in every one of us, at one time or another, we, we all, all of us, have the capacity for all these different kinds of soil. In, in every one of us. It doesn't mean that either, you know, that I'm good soil and that's it for the rest of my life, or I'm bad soil and that's it for the rest of my life. It it doesn't mean that I'm either rich, fertile soil or I'm soil soil that's choked with thorns. It means that that the preparation of the field is the responsibility of the hearer. It's up to me to open my heart. It's up to me to become good soil. The the seed of the gospel, it's always going to be sown. It's always going to be sown. The Holy Spirit and the Spirit-filled body of Christ are constantly sowing the seed. However, it's my responsibility to make sure that there are no rocks in my soil, that there are no thorns growing up in in my soul that are going to choke it out, and that the the soil of my heart is prepared and enriched so that the Word can take root and become substantial inside of me. Now, here, here's another prob- problematic part of this passage, and it, and it is this, that Jesus understood the frailty of the gospel in the human spirit. I'm not saying the frailty of the gospel. I'm talking about the frailty of the human spirit in, in dealing with the gospel, is a better way to say it, maybe. But he understood that better than most modern-day church folk do. Um, how, how many people come up to the altar of churches all over the world, and they pray a prayer to receive Christ as Savior, and then... Seems like almost instantly they lose it, and, and th- that is a deep point of discouragement to to most of us in the church. But I, I don't think necessarily it needs to be, because even even by the most careful odds in this in the in this parable we see that the odds of somebody receiving the gospel and going on in grace is maybe one in four with this parable you see. But what that means to us is. That we must get more in touch in Christian discipleship with the reality of the fact that we must identify those who genuinely receive the gospel and set, set about diligently to prepare the soil of their lives. That we have to see who is preparing the soil and, and, and understand that. What, what it means is that the greater responsibility of the discipler, of the, of the church, is to identify those who are willing to make the effort to make sure that it's going to go on in their lives. Now, it doesn't mean that you just ignore people who say, who come up and pray a prayer and then go out and just ignore, you know, and don't want to do anything to change their life. Don't get into the word. Don't pray. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm just saying, I also, uh, what I'm saying as a discipler, when I see somebody who comes and they surrender their life to Christ, and then they're, they're like, man, teach me how to pray, man, help me get into the word. I need to pay attention to that because that's somebody who the, 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 the seed is going to grow good fruit in that life. That's, that's, that's really the idea that I'm saying. And, and so, listen, there, there are some people that hear it and they receive it. But it just seems like they are determined from the very first moment to fall by the wayside. That they pray their prayer, but they can't wait to go out and, you know, and go out and do whatever they had done before. Um, they, they, they lay themselves open to the birds and to the thorns, and they, they won't work with the gospel, and they won't work with the Holy Spirit to prepare the soil of their own lives, and then, and then they'll blame the church. You know, they'll blame the church. We see it all the time. Well, I accepted Christ as my Savior, but nobody was there to nourish me. Nobody was there to disciple me. This didn't happen, that didn't happen, and they're mad at God, and they're mad at the church. Well, can I tell you something? listen, there's never been anybody that ever received Christ with less advantage than my mom did when she was 18 years old. I'm just telling you that my mom was brought up in a household of two very non-religious people. Her father was a, an alcoholic and he was an angry alcoholic and and, uh, and he was vehemently opposed to the, to the gospel, but especially to the Pentecostal message and and her family was totally non-religious. And, 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 and the seed of the gospel was planted in her heart in a revival service in a little Pentecostal church in Kansas. And, and if there was anybody ever who had an excuse to have a fragile experience with Christ, it was my mom, Georgia Cole. That was her maiden name. And it was, it was her. I mean, in fact, uh, listen, but in, in spite of that, she nevertheless set about instantly to clear the stones out of the garden, to pull up the thorns by the roots, and to, to let the roots of the gospel sink deeply into her life. So much so that she made, had to make a choice. Her, she, she, her, her father told her, you either stop going to that church or you can't live here. And she made a choice and had to leave her family You talk about rooting up the thorns and doing what you have to do to follow Christ. That's what she did. And so, and and that's what Jesus is talking about in the parable. He's saying, listen, you can be good soil or you can be bad soil. It all depends on how you decide to receive it. He says, this is a whole new thing and it's not going to happen by osmosis, but this this is a mystery of the spirit. So anyway... I'm going to go really quickly through the, the next few. Parable uh, number two is the parable of the sower and the seed. And the third parable in Mark, which is the second in this little group here, is about the inability to hide inner reality. Let's look at it. Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 25. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a head, or, or excuse me, under a bed, and and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you for to the one who has more will be given and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now listen to what he's saying. In one way, this is essentially the same as the parable of the sower and the seed. It's the sower and the seed retold in a way. He says, it's the responsibility of the hearer. Here's what I mean. I believe that there are people who hear intentionally. They hear intentionally. I know people that can hear things. I mean, good things. They hear the mystery of the gospel. They hear rich things that enrich their lives and strengthen them in the gospel. But they hear it in a sermon that everybody else thinks was the worst sermon imaginable. And I've preached a few of those in my lifetime, but it's because they hear with a greater measure. The the measure with which you hear, that's the measure that's going to be measured out to you. In other words, he says, I have a cup of seeds here and and, and I'm willing to pour it on you and I'll give you as much as you you want. If you want two grains of seed, that's the measure you're going to receive. If you want the entire cup, buddy, then we'll just empty the bucket on you. And that's what he's saying. He's saying that the way you hear the gospel is determined by the measure with which you're willing to hear. In other words, the gospel is going forth all the time, just like we said in the last parable. And there is no excuse for anybody, any place in the United States of America today to say that he's never heard the gospel. I don't believe that. It's the measure with which you're willing to hear. One cold January Sunday evening, a little boy Showed up at a little church in, uh, in Georgia, I believe it was. I'm not sure where it was, but nobody had ever seen him before. And the pastor went up to this little boy who just came by himself and said, who, who are you, son? And the, and the boy said, my name is Bill. And he said that he had walked from the trailer park. And the pastor said, well, which, which trailer park, son? And he said, the half moon trailer park. The pastor said, "Not the half moon. I, uh, you, you don't mean the half moon." He said, "Yes, sir. I've walked from the half moon trailer park, and the half moon trailer park was like a mile and a half away, and he walked there all by himself, this little boy." The pastor said, "You walked here from the half moon trailer park?" "Yes," and the pastor said, "Well, well, son, why are you here?" He said, "Well, I'll just tell you. You know, he's just a skinny little kid, just kind of precocious." He said, "Well, I'll just tell you, sir." He said, my dad's lying drunk in the middle of the floor and I don't know where my mother is. And he said, I ain't going to grow up like that. Now, Now, where does that come from in a child? I'm telling you, that, that that little old boy crawled into that pastor's pocket and every time he moved, that, that boy was like bubble gum on the bottom of his shoe. And I'm here to tell you that, that Bill grew in his faith and Bill became a, a man of God before he was 13 years of age because he was determined. He said, there is something in this thing that I can hear and I'm going to hear it. Now, listen, we in the church need to hear this, message, this parable as well because I believe with my whole heart that we hear so much gospel, so much teaching, so much preaching that we grow fat and lazy in our hearing. We hear so much gospel, so much teaching, so much pre- preaching that we just sort of eke it out. We say, well, I'm, you know, I'm so tired tonight, I'll just, I'll just take a dollop, Pastor, I'll just take a dollop of it. I've got a lot of things on my mind and I'll take whatever you can manage to force in through my ear while I think about these other things. And you know, that's about all you'll get in that situation. The measure with which we hear is the measure that will be given to us. The measure with which we're, maybe another way to say it is willing to listen. Willing to really listen. And not listen for the sake of saying, man, I wish Sister Farkel was here. She needed to hear that message tonight. The measure with which we hear the measure is the measure that will be given to us. I just want to say one other thing about this particular, the parable of this lamp. Look, look back at the very beginning of it, verse 21. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, and nor is anything secret except to come to light. The, the parable you know, in this idea of this lamp, it's almost always understood, and, and maybe it's used this way in Matthew, maybe that's why we always think this way, but the parable is almost always understood in the positive light of the gospel, that if the gospel light is within you, you don't want to cover it with a basket. You want your light to shine before men. However, this parable, in this context, that's not what this parable says. What it says is that whatever is within you will be manifested. If the gospel is in you, it will be shown. If it's evil in you, then you can try to hide it. You can put it under a, a one basket or another, but sooner or later, it's going to show up. Uh, a president of a small college in Indiana had a, a glass of water. He was preaching in a convocation at that college and and uh, he had a glass of water sitting on the edge of the pulpit when he was preaching. And in the middle of the service, you know, as sometimes happens with a preacher, he got a little carried away and he knocked it over in the middle of the convocation. This, this great formal moment. And, well, those, those college students saw that and just erupted into laughter. However, he was a foxy little uh, gentleman. And he said, he said to them, he just took advantage of the moment. He said, he said well, who can tell me why that water spilled? And there, there was silence in the room. And finally, uh, you know, some smart aleck freshman spoke up because nobody in the world knows more than a freshman in college. Um, and he said, well, Mr. President, it's because you knocked it over. And everybody laughed. And the president said, no, no, no. That's not why I spilled the water out. I, who can tell me why the water spilled out of that glass? And nobody dared answer after that. And finally, he said, the water spilled because that's what was in there. He said, if I'd knocked over an empty glass, it wouldn't have spilled the water. What's in us will eventually come out. You you see, that's the reality of the story of the lamp in the basket. It's that there's nothing hidden that won't be made manifest. Sooner or later, what you are is going to show up whether you like it or not. Now, that may be exciting for some of us. And then there are others who are just instantly burying your face in your hands. <laughs> All right, now the next one is in chapter 4, verses 26 through 29. He, he's just going from one parable to the next. Verse 26, and he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He does not know how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain of the, in the ear. But but when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Again, he's using an an agrarian example to teach the principle, this time, of spiritual growth. That, that, That spiritual growth is a concept that we cannot fully understand. We simply reap the benefit of it. We plant, I'm talking about even just in the natural, we plant. We wait, the seed dies, it sprouts, it comes up from the ground, it's watered, it's nourished, it grows and produces harvest. But who can really understand it? Who can really explain it? Even, even all of our scientific ex- explanations cannot fully explain it. Somebody, sure, somebody could say, sure, 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 I can explain it to you. It's because of this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this. However, the, the bottom line question still remains, but why? Why? Why does that work? Why does that work? You can say, well, it's because of this, this, and this. Well, no, 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 no. Why is the universe designed in such a way that those things actually happen? Why does this and this and this happen? Well, eventually they'd say, well, we don't know. Well, we say, yeah, well, God does it. Well, the, the same thing is true in the principle of spiritual growth in our lives. There is a way in which we do not understand the process of the gospel, the, the method of grace, as John Wesley called it, in our own lives. We, we simply know it's happening. In, in all truthfulness here, let's just, and let's not be falsely humble with one another, how many, of, how many of you think you're making progress with God? You know, I mean, how many of you would say, just looking back over the last... 10, 20 years, however long you've walked with the Lord, you would say, I'm, I, I'm not where I was. I've, I've moved along a little bit. I'm not claiming to be perfect or wonderful. I, I may not have arrived, but thank God I'm not where I was 20 years ago. How many of you would say that? My goodness, look at all those hands. I'm telling you what, that's wonderfully encouraging for a pastor to, hear, to see that. So the, the, the second question I would ask, how did that happen? You say, well, I stayed in the church, I fertilized the word and, took, and it took root in my heart and I tried to prepare my soul. But yeah, yeah, but why? Why did that work? Well, the, the answer is simply this. There is a supernatural element in discipleship that cannot be overlooked and cannot be explained. There is a part of this thing that's simply the mystery work of the Holy Spirit have you ever led somebody to Christ when you, when you know you're never going to see them again? Has that ever happened? Maybe on an airplane or maybe a missions trip or something like that, or, or maybe you're just talking with somebody somewhere and in that conversation you eventually say, how about praying to receive Christ now? And they say yes. And then you, you pray with them and you know, you know you'll, you'll never see them again until you get to heaven. Has anybody ever had that happen and you just struggled with that moment? just a little bit. You know, there's a man who was really struggling with that one time. He, he and another man who, who was named Jack Gray had led a, they were in Mexico and they led a Mexican fellow to Christ in, on an, in an airplane terminal standing out on the tarmac. And they, they were standing there waiting for this airplane to gas up. And they, they got to talking with this Mexican man and they just, they just led him to Christ. Standing there, the three of them, uh, they, 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 he just bowed his head and prayed to receive Christ. And then the man walked back into the terminal and they got on their plane and left. And the man who had led this, this individual to Christ said, man, that just, that just drives me crazy. He said, Jack, that just, that just grieves me. I, I won this guy to the Lord and now I don't know if he'll grow or go or, or, or anything at all. And Jack was a big old fella and he just, he just threw his head back. And, and when he laughed hard, he laughed like a tornado. And he just started laughing, <laughs> he said, you're so funny. And the man looked at him and said, Brother Jack, what do you mean? He said, well, there, there are two problems with what you're saying. He said, one is that you didn't win that guy to God. God used you to win him to himself. And he said, the second thing is he's not your spiritual responsibility. He's God's spiritual responsibility. He said, leave him to God. He said, that is, unless, of course, you think God doesn't live in Mexico. If God is down here, leave him to God. Well, you know, there's some truth in that. And it doesn't mean that we just abandon, you know, new believers and say, well, leave him to God. That's not what he's saying at all. But there is a way, you know, in which. Uh, you ought to be able to put the seed of the gospel into the ground and not hover it over it every minute. And, and you know, we often I think when sometimes we can drive a new dis- disciple right into the loony bin hovering over them, uh, you know, grow, 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 you know. So anyway, all right, let's let's go to the next one. We've got to move along. Um, now we're going to talk about the parable of the mustard seed. Chapter four verses 30 through 34. This is the last of this little group of parables and we'll do one more and then we'll be finished. Mark chapter 4 verses 30 through 34. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. Now let me just give you just just a word for the uh, mustard seed. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this one. It's simply a statement of the growth principle of the kingdom. The, the, the kingdom grows and expands. And takes on a a full form it begins to take on visible structure you know when when people get saved in a community uh, where there are no Christians before that what happens churches are formed Bible studies are started something begins to take place and the tree begins to take outward shape that that can be seen can be seen now I don't want to spend any more time on that because I want to make sure we get to the last one so turn to chapter 12 verses 1 through 12. This is the last parable of Christ in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 12, 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he said to them,, excuse me, again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, uh, some they, they beat some they, and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, "They will respect my son, but those tenants said to one another, "This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours." And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Then then he asked a question. You remember we talked about the questions of Jesus when he he would just ask these devastating questions. And this is what he's uh, uh, about to say. He's going to refer to one of the most famous messianic quotes from Psalm 118. So he's Again, in this question, he's insulting the Pharisees because in essence, he's saying, haven't you ever read Psalm 118? Well, of course they had, but they hadn't really read it. He says, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now that's the parable, but look at verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. Why? Why did they fear the people? For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So Jesus is telling a parable here about the rights of God. God has rights as creator. He has rights as owner. He has rights as, the, as provider slash protector. He has a right to the fruit of the vineyard. But what does he receive instead? He receives the death of his prophets. Th- those who are sent to collect the debts in this parable, they're obviously the prophets. And so the, and then Jesus, he goes on and prophesies his own impending death due to the jealousy of those who have been given stewardship over the vineyard. But vineyard. Now please note verse 12. It says where we I brought this out. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. What a shocking little verse. I heard about a man who went up to the pastor, a pastor of a very, very large church one Sunday, and the church was so large that the pastor didn't know the man. You know, the larger the church, the more unlikely it is that you'll know everybody there. And so the man went up to him and after the sermon on one Sunday morning, and said, I know you were you were talking about me this morning. And, and he said that to this pastor who didn't even know him. And he knew the pastor didn't know him. But, but does anybody see the obvious implication in that statement? <laughs> what the pastor wanted to say was, well, if that's true, if I was talking about you, then repent. And, and if it's not true, if I wasn't really talking about you, then what guilt in your own soul makes you believe that it's true? You understand, these guys, they're sitting over there and then Jesus is talking about somebody killing the prophets, you know, beating them up, stoning them, rejecting the ownership of God over the vineyard, which is Israel, so that they can possess it for themselves in religious leadership. Jesus tells this parable and they say to themselves, well, this guy is talking about us. If they think that, then it seems like they, they if they really believed that, if they really understood what was going on, that maybe they would have fallen on their faces and said, my God, is that what we have done? Is that what we have done? We, we've, have we rejected the ownership of God? And have we claimed the, the vineyard for our own possession and killed the prophets? Do we have murderous, jealous envy in our hearts that we would kill the authority that God has placed in, uh, with us, His Son, the, the living Word? Seems like if it had pricked their conscience even just a little bit, they would have said, well, he's talking about us. We're in deep soup here. We better get things right. Instead, their response was, in essence, he's talking about us. Let's kill it. You ever thought, thought about that? The the great hypocrisy and a lot of these things that that the Pharisees would say, you're breaking the law. And Jesus would refute them and they'd say, let's kill him. As if killing is not against the law. What does that tell you about them? Well, it tells me that they're totally seared in their conscience. That their conscience is fully hardened. That the words of Jesus are not sinking in that they are not hearing. And they're intentionally not hearing. They are 100% repro- reprobate in their minds. They not, not only know that he's talking about them, they're, they're willing to admit the facts and they're, they're willing to kill the one who's telling the truth. In, in order to what? In order to hide from their own culpability. God forbid that we should ever fall to that place. Now, now let me just give you a little bit of general overview as we, as we wind this down. There, there, that's the six parables in the Gospel of Mark. So first of all, what, what was Jesus' style? Well, He uses common things to reveal profound spiritual realities. And the other thing is that, that the parables have a feeling of, of being spontaneous in, 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 the, in the context of the moment. Something is happening, an event, He discerns something, He experiences something. Uh, you know, maybe he sees somebody doing something, sees a sower, uh, you know, sowing a seed out there. Maybe he sees that and, and you get the sense that he says, let me tell you a little story about this. That reminds me of something. Now, it doesn't mean that he hasn't thought them out. It doesn't mean that they weren't clearly reasoned and prepared, prepared in his mind beforehand. But they just have the feeling of being spontaneous. Second thing, what does the general order of these parables teach us? Is there something there we can see? Listen to this. You might want to write this down. There are three things. The first parable, if you remember, was about a whole new order in the kingdom. The second parable, really in that group of parables, it's all about the mystery of grace, the spreading of the word, the believing of the word, the growth of the word, the maturity of the word, the discipleship of the word, the mystery of how that all happens inside a person. So the first one is the new order of the kingdom. The second is the mystery of grace. The third one is, a, and the, the last one, or really the sixth parable, but the last one is about the rejection of the son. So now let's look at that and put different words to it. The first one, a new reality of the kingdom. How about incarnation? The second one, the mystery of grace, operative in the lives of others. That sounds like ministry. The third one is the rejection of the Son of, uh, of God. That sounds like crucifixion. And the, the order of the parables in the Gospel of Mark actually really parallels the very life of Jesus, the incarnate Word, the public ministry, and then the lonely rejection and crucifixion of Christ. Now let me, let me just conclude with a general mark or, or t- remark or two, and then we'll be finished. In, in all of these parables, then the question we ask ourselves at the very first, and our goal in looking at all these is, who is Jesus? So what do we see about Jesus in this? The the parables that that he taught were were very, very important. Don't don't ever think that I'm minimizing that. But, But my point is that it's much more important to find out who Jesus is as we read the parables. We see that Jesus had a, powerful ability to communicate profound truths. And he did it in a way that disturbed the whole atmosphere around him. I mean, and he was not afraid to use drama at all. I mean, in that story of the owner of the vineyard sending out one servant after another, he, that, he built that story and built it and built it and built it and built it. You know, they rejected this one. They despised that one. They threw stones at this one. They killed that one. He sent more and more and they were all turned away. And finally sent, he sent his own son and they killed him. Well, that's a very powerful story. So, so Jesus is not afraid to build some drama into the situation We see that up close, Jesus was a dynamic communicator who was was dealing with huge, huge cosmic issues and was able to make them clear using simple, profound truths. The second is that Jesus used the teaching style that demanded the participation of His audience. You know, I've heard people say this. uh, um, I've heard it taught before. They say never, t- talking about people preaching or t- training preachers and teachers, they say never teach or say anything in any way that cannot be fully grasped by a sixth grade child. Now I've heard people who are training preachers say that. They say that to, to appeal to the mind and the vocabulary and the thought processes of a sixth grade child. And they said if you do that, most of the people in the congregation will be able to get it. Well, listen, I do not believe that and I have never practiced that. Because that, to me, smacks of uh, smug elitism. You know, well, we understand the mysteries. We've got to dumb it down so people can get it. And, you know, I mean, who who do they think they are? Do do, do they think that nobody in the world has ever had a creative thought except for somebody who's been ordained? That, That actually sort of irritates me at times when I hear that kind of smug elitism among, you know, the keepers of the flame. We're, we're, I'm just here to tell you as a minister, we're not the only people who have ever thought about God. And I, I know that. In the second place, and, and you know, and listen, this is just my own personal persuasion, and I'm just going to say this. When I'm preaching my, my heart, my soul, and my strength and my brains out, I expect the audience to like keep up. You know, I really do. And, and if I ever say something or use a word that you don't fully understand, and I, I try to use it in a way and put it into context to help you understand the words that, I'm, that I say, but, but, but you know what? You can take that as an opportunity to grow yourself and say, man, you know, I don't know that word. Maybe I'll get a dictionary. You don't even have to get a dictionary. You can look it up on your phone on Google right away. But, but, but you know, I don't expect you, I expect you to be able to grasp the deep things of god because the spirit of god is going to help you do that and so you know that that's why i don't i don't ever try to dumb things down i try to explain it fully i try to break it down as much as possible but i'm not going to try to avoid it and say well let me just talk to these people they're they're all you know they're no smarter than a bunch of sixth graders so let me just dumb it down for them that's just not that's just not how i approach it that's not what i believe about you i, th- I think jesus was like that jesus said this is the truth you have ears to hear. I mean, didn't you hear that over and over and over again in these parables? I, I'm telling you the truth here, he says. and He says, he, he says I'm not going to measure it out to you in little bits and pieces. He says, this, I'm not going to, uh, you know, this is not the gospel through a through an eyedropper. I'm talking about heaven here. If you want to listen, then listen. If you want to hear and you've got ears, then use them. If you don't, well, then that's between you and God. In almost every parable he says, he who has ears to hear will hear more. You, 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 the more you hear, the more you will hear. The, the more you understand, the more you will understand. The clearer the gospel becomes to you, the clearer it will become. And the clearer it becomes, the more you'll want it. And, and those who stonewall because they've got hardened hearts like the Pharisees and they say things like, well, well, I don't know, I don't know. You shall not commit adultery. I can't imagine what that could possibly mean. I'm sure there's some hidden truth there somewhere. I mean, listen, there are are guys with earned PhDs in Ivy League schools who read, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And they say, let's call a summit conference and see if we can figure out what that means. My goodness. I I mean, one can almost sense what the attitude of Jesus would have been about that. You know? I have the sense that when Jesus was talking throughout the Gospel of Mark, the immediate Jesus, that the audience, those people that were just everyday ordinary people, not the the trained religious elite, but they were listening and they were hearing and they were understanding and they were just leaning in to hear and, and straining to hear what Jesus was saying. And I say, well, let it be so, God. You know, that's the way it ought to be. The third thing, is that Jesus was courageous. I said in one of the previous weeks, I don't know if it was the first or second week, but I'm, that I've always felt like it's, it was no surprise to me that Jesus was crucified. The surprise to me was that he lasted for three years. Because he was bold. He was so bold in these things when he said them. The, that last one that we read about the vineyard in, in chapter 12, the, the, that parable follows an astonishing confrontation between Jesus and, and Jesus and the Pharisees. And they, they say to him, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus answered, like he often did, he answered a question with another question. He said, all right, I'll, I'll ask you a question. He, he said, I'll answer your question if you'll answer mine. By what authority did John the Baptist do the things that he did? Well, now, they knew that John the Baptist was considered to be a prophet by the people. And they had participated in ostracizing him. They had participated in his arrest. They had been been part of what eventually led to his death, that they had rejected him. They had taught against him. They said he was just a, a fraud. and so. But listen, they knew in that moment that if they say out loud to Jesus that he was a fraud, then the people are going to rise up and stone them to death. However, if they say that he was a prophet, then the people are going to say, oh, well, if he was a prophet, prophet then why didn't you repent and believe? Why did you talk bad about it? So they say, well, mm, you know, mm, mm, boy, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's a tough question there, Jesus. We don't have an answer for that. And Jesus said, well, if you won't answer me, I won't answer you. However, he said, I'd like to tell you a little story. There was once a man that owned a vineyard. He built it. He protected it. He put walls around it. He planted it. He fertilized it. It was his. He owned it. and it And he had a right to every bit of it. However, he handed over to some, to some tenants who, uh, the, that, he, that they would take care of it and, and tend to the vines. And then he sent people to collect the, the fruit of that and they beat them up. And finally he sent his son and they killed him. And the Pharisees say, well, this sucker's talking about us. Now, here's the thing. We got to know. Jesus knew that it was going to be clear to them. So, so in the light of context that he knew that they knew it was going to be about them. So what strength of character did it take for him to tell that parable anyway? Knowing it was going to just throw fuel on the fire that was going to lead to his very crucifixion. Courage. Phenomenal courage. Courage. And I really believe that one of the missing elements of modern Christian preaching and teaching is is that it is at times strikingly gutless. I'm going to offend somebody. I shouldn't say that. I'll say it is without a great deal of guts. (laughs) That's what I mean to say. It's wimpy and it's gutless often. However, you don't see that in Jesus. If you have any idea that Jesus was this weak, effete, uh, ineffectual preacher, then you are not reading the parables that I'm reading. All right, then what, what do we find here? What, what do we find here when we sit at Jesus' feet and listen and, 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 and to learn that, uh, that, that we are confronted with who God is, we are, we are confronted with who we are, we are challenged, And we have to deal with things that are not always comfortable to deal with. That we don't want to deal with. Nevertheless, we find that it's so good that it's sort of like biting a sore tooth. You just can't stop. You know what I'm talking about? Every time I get close to God, I end up repenting for something. I I, I find that the closer I get to God, the more realistically I view myself. Well, the obvious conclusion from the viewpoint of the world would be then, well, hey, then why don't you just stay away from God? Well, he's so wonderful that I can't stay away. The, the, the closer I get to Jesus, the more infatuated I get. He's courageous. I want his courage. He's insightful. I want revelation. He's simple. God, spare me from overly complicating things. He's powerful and profound. Oh, God, deepen my life. I hear these, his his simple little stories, and I realize that in simple things, birds, trees, seeds, and vineyards, that he's unfolding the cosmic realities of the kingdom of God right before my very eyes. And I say, sitting in his feet, I say, Oh, Lord, tell me another one. Just just tell me one more. Talk to me a little bit longer. And I fall in love with him a little bit more. Let's, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for people who Come out on a Wednesday night to study your word and to listen to teaching. And, and God, you know, I don't, I don't ever want to fail them in any way. But I thank you, God, that irrespective of how poverty stricken my teaching is, that the Holy Spirit works like a mystery in our lives, Lord. Lord, Lord help us to prepare our hearts. Bring forth the word in us and and, and through us. Shape us in, in, into your image, Lord God. And hold us um, uh Uh, 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 in your arms mold us after the image of christ bring us to maturity and god lord we, we long for this we ache for this i just pray that your spirit will help us to say stay so fixed on jesus that that we won't miss a single word of what you're saying teach us oh lord teach us more in the strong name of jesus we pray amen